0: Hello, this is Jeff Vanderstelt, Executive Director of Saturate and the host of the Saturate podcast. As the holidays approach, I want to say on behalf of the whole Saturate team that we are so grateful for you, the listener. It's a joy and a privilege to join you in this space with each episode. We hope this podcast serves to encourage, inspire, and equip you on your own disciple-making journey. I also want to extend a huge thank you to our Saturate partners, a group of people whose donations fund this podcast and also fund our work creating disciple-making resources and investing in leaders through coaching and training. We simply could not do this without you. We are so thankful to you that you give us this opportunity to serve and equip leaders towards gospel saturation. As we approach this new year, we're so excited as we work on some new projects and new initiatives that we're looking forward to rolling out to serve more and more leaders and more and more churches. But we're going to need your help financially to get there. Would you prayerfully consider Saturate in your year-end giving? You can just go to saturatetheworld.com forward slash give. That's saturatetheworld, all one word, dot com forward slash give. We need your help and we would love to receive your support to serve more and more leaders, more and more churches, and more and more cities. We wish you a wonderful holiday season. Saturate exists to serve and equip leaders to start and strengthen unified gospel city movements that lead to gospel saturation to the end that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to meet Jesus through his church on mission everywhere and every day. Now, during this episode, I thought it might be good just to step back and revisit this vision of gospel saturation. Where does it come from? What informs our thinking about it? And what do we believe is going to need to take place in order for you to begin to see the seeds of it sown and the realization of it experienced in your context. Often when I teach about this idea or cast a vision for gospel saturation, I just go back to the the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.14, where we, we read, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a saturation point. That's a a place in which you can't go anywhere without experiencing, seeing, hearing the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that word glory is an important uh, word, and I think it's important to pause and describe what that means. Uh, The simple way of describing glory is that glory is when the invisible nature or character of God is made known, is made visible. It's when the invisible becomes visible. It's when the unknown becomes known. And so in the sense of God's glory, it's that the true nature of what God is like gets to be both seen and heard through declaration, that uh, you can't get away from the nature of what God is like, that everyone has access to the full display of the the nature and character of who God is, both in word and in deed. That's what that word "glory" means. That some some will say, you know, that word "glory" means weight or the weightiness of something. And so, oftentimes, I'll I'll talk about how the idea that if I were to get on a scale, the the weight or the glory <laughs> of Jeff will be clearly seen. You'll look and see how much I actually weigh. Uh, and that I don't know if that's too glorious or not. I certainly could use. Uh, a few pounds being removed from that scale. But the idea is that God has created his people, created all people, in fact, as image bearers. We were originally intended to, to display the true nature of what God is like in our physical bodies through both what we say and do. And of course, we've fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says is what sin is. We've all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of displaying and declaring the true nature of what God is like. Not one of us has perfectly displayed and declared the true nature of God in our lives. And so the wage of that sin falling short of the glory of God is what Paul also says is death. That when we fail to be who we were meant to be in relationship with God and people to fully display what God is like as his image bearers, we experience death. And that word death in Hebrew means separation. So it's not just the altar, the, the death that we're, you know, at the end where our, our soul is removed from our body, though it does include that, but it's also all the other death we experience separation in our relationship with God separation in our relationship with our own self, separation in our relationship to one another, even separation in how we relate to creation. That's been broken as well. And we see death in all of its aspects being worked out. And then we know there'll be an eternal death. And that is that there will be, for those who do not have a relationship with God, do not come to God through Jesus Christ, there will be a day when there'll be an eternal separation. Where will we will those of us who have not put our faith in Him have not had a relationship established with God through Jesus will be separated forever, and so there is this idea that God is through His people now the church and we'll talk more about that making a display people for the true nature of what God's God is like to be known, seen and heard, but also so that others might come to see and know who he is, and also be restored to their original creation intention. And that is that they would become image bearers of God once again, who display and declare the truth of what God is like. So that's the big picture, that there'll be a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory, the true nature of what God is like, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we know that Israel failed to be that display people, and so Jesus comes And is the full display of the true nature of God. Is is the God-man who in him, the fullness of deity, dwelt in physical form. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus comes. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the full display of deity and bodily form. If you want to know anything about what God's like, Jesus is the one to look to now because he has shown us the true nature of God. In fact, at one point he's asked by one of his disciples, would you just show us the Father? And Jesus says, have I been with you? Have I not been with you long enough? I mean, can't you? don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Well, Paul then goes on later in Colossians 1, and he says, uh, actually, to them, referring to those who have yet to know God, to To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory. There's that word again, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Paul's saying not only is Christ the fullness of the glory of God, the full display of what God's like, but he's saying now, if you by faith have received Christ, submitted to him, followed him, believed in him, then he now by his spirit is in you. And that is the hope of glory. That's the hope of how God is going to make himself known to those who don't yet believe uh, what he's actually like. So now the hope of the glory of God saturating every space with his presence and the knowledge of what he's really like is in his people, in you and I, those of us who believe and now have by his spirit Christ in us, shining forth through us like Paul says, like jars of clay displaying the true nature of God through these very, very weak and broken vessels. But Paul also gives a vision of this for the church. In Ephesians 1:22 and 23, Paul says this about Jesus, that God put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's the word Soma, and some of you know that I'm part of the Soma family of churches, and uh, this passage is key to how we understood who we are as the church. We are his Soma, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what Paul is saying there is the means by which God is going to bring about the saturation reality, filling every space with his presence, with the display of his glory is through his church, the body that God has intended that he would fill his church with his presence in such a way that every space in which his church lives, works, learns, and plays would be filled with the true nature, the true knowledge of the nature of who God is and what he's done. So it's through the church, us filling every space with the presence of Christ. Now let's be clear, this is not referring to when we, primarily when we gather, though it does happen when we gather together as his body on a Sunday or whenever it is that you gather. It's referring to him filling a city, a, a place with his fullness. In this case, it would have been Ephesus. But as many of us know, the letter to the church in Ephesus was also passed around to all the churches so that all the churches would embrace this vision that God intends to fill the space they live in with his presence every day, everywhere, through his people, being a display people for his glory. Now, in order for that to happen in your city, you think about your entire city, whether that's a a big one or a small one. I'm in Seattle. That's pretty big. The greater Puget Sound is around 4 million. When I go to Tokyo, we're talking 28 million uh, some of your cities are less than a million, uh, even a couple hundred thousand. But re- regardless, there's a lot of people there. In order for that to happen, to see the entire city filled with the presence of Jesus so that Jesus through his people would display the true nature of what God is like, we're going to need to have every Christian uh, see themselves as the church, one church in a city in order to see this take place. In fact, that's what Jesus prays in John 17, 21, and 23. He says, Father, I pray that they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, that's this is like intimate relationship. This is not just an idea. This is a relational attachment with God the Father, God the Son, by God the Spirit, so that we might be in the very Godhead, and the very Godhead might be in us. And he says, I want that to be true, that they would be one, the church would be one. How many churches are in your city? One. That we would be one church, one body, experiencing the unity of the body, both in relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also with each other. He says... That that would be true so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, this is a missional implication. Well, why is that? He, well, he goes on. He says, Because the glory that you have given me, remember, glory is the, the display of the true nature of what God is like. Jesus was given a body, he was anointed and filled with and led by the Spirit. He displayed fully what God is like in this body. saying, That very glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Now they have the means to display the true nature of what you are like. And he says that they may be one even as we are one. And don't miss this. Not only is it Christ in us that is the hope of glory, but it's us united together for the sake of gospel saturation in our city that displays the true nature of what God is like. And that is that God is one. If God the Father and God the Son are not one, then Jesus' mission was not on behalf of the Father, and therefore what Jesus did did not accomplish anything to restore us back into relationship with God the Father. But because they are one, the very mission Jesus is on is the mission the Father is on. And therefore everything that Jesus did and said is in line with what the Father did and said, which is why Jesus says in John 5, the Son can do nothing apart from what he sees the Father doing, that whatever he sees the Father doing, that's what the Son is also doing. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, if we as the church in a particular place are not united as one body, then we are telling a lie about what God the Father or God the Son and God the Spirit are like. Our division is displaying to the world that God is divided because it is through what they see and what they hear from us that they come to understand what God, the glory of God, what God is actually like. So we are actually telling a lie about the glory of God. We're saying God is divided through our division. So first and foremost, there's a theological implication here to our unity that we must be one, one body. We are in the heavenly realms. God sees us as one, but sadly, here on the earth we often live like we are disconnected, divided, individualistic churches. And so first and foremost, theologically, we need to step into what is already true, and that is that there is one body, as Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Now, second, it's missiological. The world is not going to come to know what God is like and trust that what Jesus has said is on behalf of the Father, if we, on behalf of Jesus, also don't represent a unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have and then lastly and this is also missiological there is no way we are ever going to see this vision of gospel saturation take place if we don't all work together it's going to require the entire church the whole of Jesus body living for his glory in unity on mission together in a particular place so that's that's the big idea gospel saturation as the scriptures lay it out now how how do we work this out? How do we live and work in such a way in unity together as the church in a particular place to see gospel saturation take place? Well, for this, I want to turn to the apostle Paul's journey uh, as he is bringing the gospel to, to bear in a particular place to see people come to know Christ. And it's interesting you know paul paul's work was so sufficient that he was able to move on from a city and say like i've done everything I, I i need to do so that these people have now access to the true uh the truth of the gospel and the true nature of what god's like and then he can move on to another city so i think it's important to pause and ask well what were the key things that paul did to be able to ensure that a city had full access to Jesus, to the true nature of what God is like through Jesus in a particular place. So let's go back to Acts 13, where we see the beginning of Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey. It says this in verse 1, There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So we see, first of all, priority of prayer. Now, when we think about our city and we think about gospel saturation, don't forget we're called to be one church, one body in the place we live, in the context of which we find ourselves. And so as I walk through these elements, I want you to think through collaboration. I want you to think through a unified effort. So the first one here is we see the church together fasting and praying, waiting on the Lord, dependent upon the Lord. And that's, it's in that space that the Spirit speaks and tells them what to do. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've set them apart to do. And they they pray and fast more before they commission them to the work. And so I think let's just pause and ask in our own context, how dependent are we through prayer, through worship, through fasting, through all the things that connect us to God? How collaboratively are we engaged in a corporate Dependence on God to move in our city. And I know there are some remarkable works being done in a variety of places. I know 24-7 has been really helpful in helping us really devote ourselves to praying for our city in 20, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bellingham, Washington has been a great expression of this for several years. And as a result, they've seen a significant amount of spiritual awakening and breakthrough. I know there are other cities that have done this as well. Nashville's one of them. Um, And so, you know, in your context, in your place, how are you doing at collaborating in a God-word dependency through collaborative prayer, fasting, seeking God for the sake of your city? That's the first one. Second, we continue reading, and we're going to jump over now to Acts 14, uh, further on in Paul's journey in verse 21. And it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Now don't miss the word they. There's a plural thing. This is not just an individual. This is a, a group of people together preaching the gospel to that city. Then they made many disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and Antioch. Those are the previous cities they've already done some of this work in. And we'll get to that next. But let's not move past this. It's very clear. Luke is very detailed, and he wants to make sure we don't miss it. They preach the gospel, so we've got to have people collectively and collaboratively engaged in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those who don't yet know um, you now there's a group of people who are fluent in the gospel they know how to proclaim it in a variety of ways to a particular to a different contexts in ways that make sense to that particular city or context, and as they do it, they make many disciples so that's the second key element for gospel saturation that we've got to collaborate together in our city for the sake of disciple making. Now let's be clear I think over the years we've kind of had these categories of evangelism and discipleship uh, as you know evangelism being proclaiming the gospel to those who don't yet know and believe so that they might experience regeneration and come to faith in Jesus and then we often think discipleship is now what you do after that and I just want to I want to like break that down and just say like no disciple making is evangelism and discipleship. It is proclaiming the good news of Jesus for someone's conversion, coming to faith, being regenerated, made alive in the Spirit, being born again, and then the ongoing work of helping them grow up from spiritually dead to becoming a spiritual infant to a spiritual child to a spiritual young adult, eventually getting to a place where they can become a spiritual parent where they, they're they able to oversee spiritual families that continue to make more disciples. So here's the question. How effective are you? How effective is your church or ministry? And how effective is the city at disciple-making? Another quite way to ask this, are you together as the church in your context discipling the city that you live in? Are you together working so that every man, woman, and child in your context has repeated opportunities to both hear the gospel, respond in faith to the gospel and then be built up as a disciple who will also be able to become a disciple-making disciple. Co- collectively across the country right now and probably around the world, many would say the biggest weakness in the church is that we don't know how to make disciples. It's the biggest weakness. And yet it is the the number one thing we all know Jesus has called us to do. Like it's the mission he left us with. And so I would just ask Do you have a collaborative and collective commitment as the church in your context to make sure every follower of Jesus, every church, every nonprofit that claims Jesus as Lord, that every one of those people is being equipped to be an effective disciple making disciple? This may be the most important thing we need to work on in these coming days uh, because I think it's so important. I actually. Uh, wrote a book with Exponential called 180 A Return to Disciple Making. It's going to be the theme of the Exponential Conference in 2024. Um, I think it is the thing we've all got to be talking about. And I'd love to see a collaborative Gospel City movement in your context working together to ensure everybody who names Jesus as Lord is equipped to become a disciple making disciple. Third, we'll keep reading. They return to Lystra. So, after they preach the gospel, and make many disciples, they go back to previous cities, Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch, where they'd been before, had already done uh, the prayer and fasting, had already made many disciples through preaching the gospel and establishing their faith. But then it goes on, it says they went back to those cities and they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So, this third element is that we're going back to strengthen people to become healthy leaders. So we've got prayer, commitment to disciple-making together, and strategies to do it more effectively in our city. And then third, we want to see healthy leaders raised up. Now, I have been sadly on the front row of far too many situations where we've seen the beginning of significant gospel movements, uh, citywide works get completely undermined by the unhealth of leaders leaders burning out leaders blowing up leaders ruining their church leaders break destroying their marriage leaders being spiritually abusive spiritually oppressive and as a result the previous work of collaborative prayer and disciple making gets comp- just obliterated or at least undermined and significantly broken. Um and I as you probably know, I'm in Seattle and my most recent post was stepping into what was Bellevue Mars Hill and some Bellevue Samamis joined us uh after everything blew up. So I I didn't step in while it was Mars Hill, but after it blew up and we needed to st- see a new church started out of the the remnant that remained, I stepped in and helped plant a new church called Doxon. Was there about seven years or so and um yeah I'll just tell you firsthand, the damage of unhealth in the leadership is is incredibly painful, uh, terribly pervasive. It doesn't just hurt the local church, it hurts the the church in the city. and we're still recovering. And I praise God for the way He's redeemed the work here, how he's raised beauty out of ashes, how he's encouraged the church as a whole to unite even greater. But I would just say if you are a leader, or if you're responsible for leaders or you're in a church and you're listening to this and thinking about your leaders, this has got to be one of our top priorities. We have got to pray for our leaders. We've got to provide safe places for our leaders to get honest and real and vulnerable. We need to provide the resources for them to get healthy and not just church leaders. We need this for nonprofit leaders. We need this for business leaders, civic leaders. We need healthy leaders in our cities because if the leaders fall, if the leaders abuse, if the leaders um, are full of pride, full of self, full of narcissistic tendencies, then uh, it undermines the whole work. And so Paul even later, you know, as we know, as he writes to Timothy, he warns him to keep a close watch on his both his life and his doctrine. In so doing, Paul says to Timothy, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's a lot on the line, leaders. We have got to take seriously our own health. And so Paul goes back to strengthen the churches and make sure that they can continue and remain faithful as they continue to build up the church in their context. Number four, verse 22, Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, he encouraged them to continue in the faith. And he told them that it would be through much suffering or tribulation that they would enter the kingdom of God. Now, that kingdom of God language isn't, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, though that, that is also true. But the kingdom of God is another way of saying the rule and reign of Christ. Wherever we experience Jesus as king expressing his rule and reign through his people in such a way that the people under that rule and reign get to experience and taste what the kingdom of God is like. And in most cases, in Jesus' ministry and in the early church, that looked like very tangible forms Of serving people, whether that was healing people, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, welcoming the lonely into homes. Uh, Whatever it was, it was good news in tangible form. I like to call it kingdom good or serving the city in such a way that they taste and see that the Lord is good. So first one is we pray and fast, depend on God. Second, we Preach the gospel, making many disciples. Third, we collaboratively are committed to leader health in our city. Fourth, we're committed to serving our city together in such a way that they see the kingdom of God breaking in in tangible form. Um, in Charleston, that's been as I've worked there, they've worked hard at seeing uh, you know racial reconciliation happen. In Seattle, you know we've got we've got to address stuff like sex sex trafficking foster care and adoption, uh, homelessness, hopefully seeing significant reform happening in the schools. Uh, there's a lot we got to do here in Seattle. Um, you know, what is it in your city? What does your Where does your city need the rule and reign of Christ? Where does your city need the expression of the kingdom? Where does your city need to taste and see that the future reality when all things will be made new uh, is brought into the present. Where do they need to taste and see the future in the present? You know, what if, what if, in your context, the church has said we will be one church to serve the needs of our city? Often, I'll ask the question: You know, what if we had to prove to the city that our not-for-profit status was deserved because? We had significantly reduced the need for taxes in our city because of the good works we were doing as the church in that city. To me, that is why we get a tax break, why we don't have to uh, pay taxes like for profits do, is because the nonprofit is, is expected to bring relief to the tax burden, that there should be less need for taxes to take care of the brokenness in the city because the church, the people of God, both in the church, as well as many other expressions in the city, are actually doing the work of bringing the kingdom of God to bear on the places where they desperately need Jesus's restoration and renewal. So how are we collectively serving the city together? And then lastly, we read in verse 23 of Acts 14, when they appointed elders for them in every church, prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now now what Paul's re- what, what Luke is referring to here is now in each one of these cities uh whether it was Antioch or Lystra or Iconium wherever it was that they went they they finished the work at least Paul and his team by appointing elders and those were elders over the city not just over like a local congregation this was the church in the city that they oversaw the care of that city the prayer for that city the making disciples in that city the healthy leadership in that city the serving the city in tangible forms now there's these elders appointed to continue to oversee that work so we saw a church planted and so the fifth element is new churches started new kingdom initiatives uh begun and when all that's in place in a collaborative way with the church as a whole working together as one around those five key elements We can be certain that what will happen is similar to what Paul experienced in Ephesus, where when he finally left after three years, he could say, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I proclaim the gospel to every one of you. And we knew in Ephesus, they had such a base built that the the whole of Ephesus had the opportunity to meet meet Jesus, hear the truth about him, respond to him because the body of Christ was equipped and mobilized for all of Ephesus. So here's the question for you. In your context, what's already in place? Out of those five, prayer, disciple making, leader health, serving the city, starting new churches, new kingdom initiatives, which of those are you collaborating well together on? And which ones do you need to intentionally begin to pull people together, seek the Lord, collaborate, and begin to work collectively together on. I often will take all five of those elements and just kind of do a one to five number scale and say, where are you at presently in your context? One being, we've identified that it's important. So we say prayer is important. That's a one. Two, we begin to identify some key outcomes, some things that we want to see happen. In some cities, we want to see 24-7 prayer going on. Or if we take the element of, Planting churches, for instance, I know in Buffalo they said we want to plant one church per a hundred thousand people uh, in the next ten years, and then they reduce that to one church per fifty thousand and the next ten years, and they're just kind of methodically working until they get to a place where I believe they want to see one church per thousand people in Greater Buffalo. So those are that's a shared outcome. So we have a, we've identified the initiative. We have a shared outcome with measurables we're aiming for. We have a team, that would be a three on the scale. We have a team that is now working collectively towards those uh, key initiatives and shared outcomes. And four, we actually have a track record of some actual tangible things that have happened long enough that we can point to fruit taking place. And then five, we would say we're actually being fruitful to the point at which we can measure a discernible difference around that key element. So I just encourage you think about your context, You know, you could start even individually. Where am I at on all these five? And then maybe second, am I doing it with anybody else? And then is our church doing it together? And then ideally, are we as the church in our context doing uh, these five or one of these five in a collective way? And I'm convinced if you just begin to do one of them together as the church in your context, you'll eventually get to the other four. Well, I want to encourage you, start where you're at, begin with small steps, I know this is a massive vision, which might be overwhelming to you, but begin with yourself and begin with the authority that God's given you and the dominion he's given you to have authority over, whether that's your your own home, your neighborhood, your family, your workplace, your ministry, if you have leadership of one. And over time, if you have greater dominion and leadership in the city, please steward that well for the sake of gospel saturation. Well, thanks for joining us for the Saturate podcast. I hope you are inspired and encouraged as well as receive some ideas of how you could take some next steps in the work God's called you to do in your own context. I want to let you know of another way that you might be able to receive some ongoing encouragement and equipping. You could visit saturatetheworld.com where we have a lot of our resources, our training, PDFs, videos, audio, a whole bunch of stuff to serve you in your journey towards being a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Now, we're going to provide a code for you to use if you'd like to try a two-week free membership to our subscription-based services. That code, if you'd like to use it, is PODCAST2023. That's one word, all lowercase, PODCAST2023. And we'd love to just invite you to check out what we have online so that you can see if it's something that might serve you and maybe serve the people that you also lead or work with as you consider what it would take for you to get more and more equipping. It's our desire to make this available to as many people as possible. And so everybody who eventually pays for a monthly subscription makes it available for free for people who can't afford it. We've had the honor of being able to give almost 500 free subscriptions away this last year, and we're hoping to give even more to those around the world who can't afford the membership. But if you can, we'd love for you to consider it. Try it for free for a couple weeks, see if it serves you well. And if so, love for you to continue on and be a Saturate member. Second, I want to invite you to consider being a Saturate partner. And that's someone who's committed to pray and or also give to support the work of gospel saturation. What we do is completely based on fundraising and the money that comes in through the subscription and some of the products we're able to sell, but the majority of our work is funded by people like you who just believe in the work and wanna see more of it done. So if you wanna pray with us and join us in praying for gospel saturation, send us an email at hello at saturatetheworld.com Let us know you want to be a prayer partner, and we'll begin to send you updates so you know how to pray specifically. And if you want to give, just go to saturatetheworld.com, click on the Give button, and you'll see all the instructions there to help you take a step towards supporting the work as a Saturate partner. Again, thank you so much for listening in, and I can't wait till you hear the next one. I hope we continue to encourage you with the work of gospel saturation in North America and around the world.